Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, programs that send mental health workers on emergency calls along with police officers have seen a lot of success in our state. We're showing up with jeans, t-shirt, water, and just saying, what is it we can help support you with in this moment? Coming up, we'll learn more about the co-responder teams working to divert people from the justice system. Plus, we talk with a professor who's using impeachment as a teaching opportunity. Those stories and more, just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump is underway. Trump is being impeached for his role in citing the January 6th Capitol insurrection, which left five people dead and dozens of others injured. When President Trump faced his first impeachment trial in 2019, we asked a Colorado State University professor how he was teaching his students about the trial. Today, we are welcoming back Matthew Hitt, Associate Professor of Political Science at CSU. Matthew, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. First, I want to ask you about your classroom circumstances, because they're they're very different right now during the pandemic than the last time we spoke. How are you teaching your students? Right now, I'm teaching online. So I will lecture and hold discussions over Zoom. So it's a very different environment as an educator, certainly, than being in person. Right. Well, so let's talk about this impeachment trial, because it's historic for a few different reasons. This is The first time, I believe, a president has faced impeachment after leaving office. And it's also the first time a president has been impeached twice. So how is this coming up in your classes right now? I do get a sense of fatigue from my students in political science classes that it's been a lot of very tumultuous and conflictual news over the last four years. This second impeachment trial is unprecedented in a number of ways. As you said, a president has never been impeached twice. While some officers have been subject to the impeachment process after leaving office, historically that's quite rare and it's never happened with the president. So we're talking about how to contextualize this in a historical sense. And certainly with the COVID-19 pandemic, the level of scrutiny and attention from my students is not the same as it was last time around when the 2019 impeachment sucked up all the oxygen in the room for weeks. Right. Yeah, when we spoke with you back then, you had said your students were really engaged in learning about the impeachment process. And so I have to ask this time around, how are they engaging? Um, I mean, you did mention some general fatigue, but do you notice a difference? I do. I think our students like students all across the country from preschool through graduate school are having just some basic difficulties with staying motivated and staying engaged through a pandemic, through constant shifts from are we remote, are we hybrid, are we synchronous, are we asynchronous? And honestly, one of the things I deeply miss as a professor are those moments before and after class in person when a curious student comes up and says, hey, you were talking about that impeachment thing. Let's, what else about that? And that drive some conversation, other students start listening in, and all of a sudden, 
I know what I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes of the next class period talking about. Mm, absolutely. So when you talk with your students, uh, do they think impeachment is the right response to what happened on January 6th? Well, as with most things in American politics, whether students feel impeachment is warranted is pretty obviously colored by which political party they generally identify with and associate with. My more conservative students would say this is overblown and potentially unconstitutional. My more progressive students would say absolutely. And why is this a controversial point? Right. And so that's simply a reflection of the political culture and climate and discourse we're having right now. I'm curious, you know, how do you think the tumultuous last four years of the Trump administration, and not to mention its very uh, dramatic conclusion, has that impacted your students' desire to enter careers in politics? I have noticed a bifurcation in my students. So we know as political scientists, there's a lot of great research showing that the college years, your first experience with a presidential election, are very formative for people's political habits. And I'm concerned that a lot of young people are getting their first foray into the political process as full citizens in such a conflictual and tumultuous environment. That's not it's not ideal. And I think we'll be studying the after effects of this for a long time. I have noticed a bifurcation in my students where some are unfortunately, sadly, turning a bit cynical, becoming disengaged, sort of throwing up their hands. I don't I don't want a thing to do with this politics is it's gross, it's messy, it's combative. I, I dislike the whole thing. And both, you know, you hear a lot of, well, both sides are so terrible and the extremes of both sides are so bad. But then here in the political science department, folks who are majoring in political science are energized and recognizing that the stakes of politics are extraordinarily high. I've been saying this for a decade, but now folks, students are listening more than ever. That politics is a matter of really important and consequential decisions that affect our lives every single day. And I have a lot of very passionate, very engaged, very bright students in my classes who are entering the field of political science with the desire to go into public service, to go into careers in the public interest because they want to make a difference for the things they believe in. And as an educator of politics and civics, I couldn't be happier to support those students whatever direction they end up wanting to go. Well, lastly, just wondering, what are some of the ways that you kind of set your students up for having thoughtful conversations about politics, conversations that are constructive. Right. One of the things I really try to talk to students about, we often enter political conversation in this country as a game of persuasion and argument. And that's a game you can't win. I always emphasize to students. People's political beliefs come from very deeply rooted sources, their values, sometimes even their religion their background, their upbringing, their social circles. So you're not going to upend someone's political beliefs in the course of a single conversation. Instead, a constructive political dialogue begins with mutual respect and continues with a desire to learn about where the other person is coming from. And simply by expressing yourself, explaining where you're coming from, what leads you to believe what you believe, and trying to, in the course of a conversation, learn about where the other person's beliefs are coming from. We often come away with a greater respect for the other side in the political process. Both Democrats and Republicans tend to think of the other side as more extreme than they actually are on average. And so simply learning what the other person really thinks and why, we can often walk away feeling good about a conversation about politics instead of frustrated and angry. Hey, I think even those of us who are not currently students can can use that at home. 
Matthew Hitt is an associate professor of political science at Colorado State University. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Aaron. Have a great day. All around the state, mental health workers go out on emergency calls with police officers, helping to de-escalate, evaluate, and connect people in crisis with services instead of jail time. Following a summer in which protesters demanded changes in policing, last week, law enforcement leaders from Vail to Boulder to Evans were touting the successes of co-responder programs at a forum focusing on mental health and criminal justice. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson is with us now. Hi, Lee. Hey, Henry. Tell us more about these co-responder programs. What kind of problems are they aiming to solve? There are many, many mentally ill people who end up in correctional facilities. The numbers, of course, vary quite a bit location to location. But according to the Department of Corrections, 35 percent of inmates in uh, state-run prisons have some sort of mental health need. 74 percent have some sort of substance use disorder. So really, there's wide agreement among law enforcement, clinicians, policymakers that jail is not a good place for someone in a mental health crisis. The co-responder model creates an opportunity for mental health professionals to intervene during an incident before an individual ends up in jail or in the hospital. How long have these programs been around? The state has been funding co-responder programs since 2017, though some were around a couple years before that. I will say in Denver, they're going a step further with a new program called the Star Mobile Unit. It's basically a van. It's staffed by a social worker and a paramedic. They respond to some low-level 911 calls, usually dealing with issues like trespassing or self-harm without a police officer in the van. The whole thing got up and running over the summer, and out of the 700 or so calls they responded to during that six-month pilot, they didn't have to call for police backup at all. Last week, the advocacy group Mental Health Colorado held an online forum about these issues, criminal justice and mental health. The co-responder model was on the agenda, as was the star van. Here's Chris Richardson. He's one of the social workers who staffs it. We're showing up with jeans, T-shirt, water, and just saying, what is it we can help support you with in this moment? I think uh, STAR has definitely stood on the shoulders of co-responder programs and been able to utilize that relationship and partnerships to uh, kind of move forward. What sort of successes have these co-responder programs had? During the forum, law enforcement officers from around the state dropped some pretty significant statistics related to time and money saved, mental health holds, ER visits, jail bookings, all way down in many areas. Summit County Sheriff Jamie Fitzsimons was one of the sheriffs who spoke. The co-responder program over there in Summit County has been active for about a year. It's made up of two dedicated teams, a deputy clinician, case manager. They're in plain clothes. They're driving unmarked cars. Sheriff Fitzsimons said that last year, Summit County received about 1,000 911 calls that related to mental health issues in some way. The two co-responder teams worked on all of them, either directly or indirectly. The clinicians did 152 mental health assessments on scene. Just 20 people were put on a mental health hold. One of the things I'm most proud of is our teams had zero arrests. We've deferred uh, any criminal activity we've come across Uh, On these crisis calls, we were able to defer with the help of our district attorney's office and also our courts. 
So these co-responder teams are effectively replacing other first responders on certain calls. Fitzsimon says last year this freed up over 600 hours for these other first responders because they weren't tied up with mental health calls. So it's a tremendous amount of time that we were able to put, whether it be fire law or EMS, back in the field handling the type of calls they should. Our smart team, our co-responder, was able to uh, stay with these clients that were in need. Chief Rick Brandt, he heads up the Evans Police Department. He said their co-responder program has become indispensable. Boulder County Sheriff Joe Pelly described getting some recent emails from officers who said they're in awe of the work the co-responders do. So it's clear that many in law enforcement have strong feelings and believe in these programs, but no one law enforcement program is perfect. Where does the co-responder model fall short? Whether or not you even have access to these types of services depends on where you live. These co-responder programs are active in less than half of Colorado counties. Then, of course, there are funding issues. The state funds these co-responder programs through grants. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there. Uh, You know, will there be future grants? It's always a question. Almost all of the panelists said they need more co-responders to cover more hours of the day because the demand is humongous. Now, last summer, the Colorado Health Institute, that's a nonpartisan policy group, it evaluated seven state-funded co-responder programs. And they found that, yes, over time, co-responders were able to divert people away from arrests and emergency departments. They also found that these programs have resulted in better interactions and relationships between law enforcement and the community. But of course, you know, there are challenges. These programs are relatively new. There are some problems with data collection. So it's really difficult to develop a precise picture of exactly how they're going. In the small survey, the Colorado Health Institute found that in a few programs, less than one third of people who interact with co-responders are then, you know, later on enrolled in behavioral health services. So I think there are some questions about follow-up there. And lastly, and I thought this was interesting, They found some tension between law enforcement and mental health workers. Some clinicians have had trouble communicating with police, and sometimes police developed negative attitudes towards clinicians, perhaps due to cultural differences between mental health work and policing. KUNC's Lee Patterson covers mental health. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. State wildlife officials are in the early stages of figuring out how to meet a voter mandate to bring gray wolves back to the state by the end of 2023. But just three months into the process, new court battles and state politics are already threatening to complicate things. KUNC's Scott Franz has more. The Trump administration removed the wolves from the federal endangered species list right before the election. Lawsuits soon followed. And now the Biden administration is reviewing the issue, all of which could complicate things in Colorado. I want to challenge the commission to fulfill the effort ahead of schedule. For now, a state wildlife board still controls the process, and Governor Jared Polis wants them to finish their work before things get caged by federal politics. I've talked to the governor of Wyoming. They're happy to send us some wolves when we're ready. I think other other, uh, states are as well. But his efforts to speed things up are not sitting well with Western Slope ranchers, who have spent years fighting to keep them out of the state. Don't rush the process. Terry Fankhauser heads up the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. It sends a very clear message of non-concern and and uh, really not caring about rural Colorado, specifically western Colorado. 
He and other ranchers are not planning any lawsuits aimed at stopping the will of voters, who were mostly from the front range. But, he says, it took other states, including Wyoming, four years to plan for the return of wolves. So it will take every bit of the time that we've been granted. It's not really uh, rocket science at all. Rob Edward sees things differently. He leads the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund, which backed the measure to reintroduce them. He believes Colorado can use the other states as an example and speed up the process. We know how to locate uh, and capture wolves. We know the basic parameters of the kinds of traits that we want in these wolves, specifically with regard to their prey, etc. But beyond that, it's just a matter of putting that plan down on paper, basing it on the most up-to-date science, and giving the public a chance to review and comment and hopefully make the plan better. Edwards says researchers have already done much of the work, pointing out an almost two decades old map outlining the four most ideal places to release wolves in Colorado. There's one area north of I-70 kind of centered on the flat tops uh, wilderness area. There's another down on the uh, Grand Mesa Uncompagric Plateau. While Edward sees opportunity, Terry Fankhauser sees potential conflicts like the issue of compensating ranchers for livestock losses. If you live in one of these areas and you're you're a beef producer, you're concerned, right? You're concerned about having these things these these animals, you know, listed on a map and saying this is the place. As debate over reintroduction continues to go back and forth, the state board overseeing the plan appears to be siding with Fankhauser. Only one of its 11 members is advocating for the governor's fast track, and most, including Charles Garcia, think they should wait. I'm not in any rush to get this done again. I think we need to do it right, take our time. The picture could change this summer. Governor Polis has an opportunity to influence things in July when he makes two new appointments to the State Wildlife Board. And the new Biden administration is reviewing the previous administration's decision to delist the wolves. So I have no particular insight into what they might want to do. But Lisa Reynolds says it's hard to read all the tea leaves in Washington, D.C. right now. She's an attorney advising the Wildlife Board. I will tell you that Fish and Wildlife has been supporting a nationwide delisting for years. And so there may not be agreement between the new administration at the top and what their staff want. I think the service feels that the animal is recovered and shouldn't be on the list. And it could take years to resolve the lawsuits and reviews. So that puts advocates like Rob Edward in the awkward position of advocating for the wolves to be relisted at the same time he urges Colorado to move forward before it actually happens. As irony likes to have it sometimes, that actually presents a window of opportunity for Colorado to get on with the job of wolf recovery um, without the burden of having to go through a lot of federal hoops. And in the meantime, wolves are not waiting for politics to get settled in Colorado or D.C. New tonight, for the first time, Colorado Parks and Wildlife officers have been able to locate and collar a gray wolf. CPW officials say the wolf recently found near North Park in Jackson County belongs to a pack based in Wyoming. The news comes months after other wolves were spotted in the northwest part of the state. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. The past year has given us a lot to be sad about, but Fort Collins comedian David Rodriguez believes it's time to start laughing again, and together, in a shared space. 
It's why he's reopening the former music venue Hody's Half Note this week as a new comedy club called The Comedy Fort. KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick spoke with Rodriguez about his plans and why, just like telling a joke, timing is everything. What made you decide that right now, in the middle of a global pandemic, was the time to open a comedy club? This project has been in the works for about two years. And right before everything shut down, I thought I'd had a spot and was about to sign a lease. And then everything, everything happened <laughs> that happened last year. And so it was kind of put on pause. And the owner here reached out to me because we had, we had talks beforehand. And he's always obviously a huge supporter of live entertainment and a supporter of comedy. And he was looking at other positions and didn't want this place to just be dormant. Luckily now with the, it's, it seemed like it might be good timing for the spring because the vaccines are rolling out, cases are, are going down. And I just, I mean, I wanted to be in a position to be able to open up as soon as possible because people haven't had entertainment in a year and everybody's you know pretty ready for it. Was there ever a point where you were just like, this is crazy? Doing all of the renovation and construction myself, basically, with the help of handy friends and, and contractors that I know, has kept me busy enough to where I don't have to, <laughs> I didn't have to step back and take a look at the bigger picture and be like, ooh, this is pretty insane right now, uh, thankfully. <laughs> but my philosophy has always been to do things in a way that makes sense you know, for the for the customer and for the performer. There's plenty of things that are done in the business world that, that don't make any sense. And I'm just like, well, I'm, I'm new at this, so how about we just do things in a logical way that makes sense? And this venue and this venture just made sense to me. Now you actually, you know, got your start here in this very venue when Hody's used to offer open mic nights for comedians. What was it that got you into comedy in the first place? My friend took me to an open mic when I was living in Denver. And before going to an open mic, your only exposure to comedy is, you know, the super famous Chris Rock, George Carlin, uh, Jerry Seinfeld superstars, you know, they're like movie stars, basically. And you're like, oh, that's, a, you know, stand up comedians. That's a cool, glamorous profession. I never considered it something that anybody could just do until I went to an open mic and I'm like, oh, literally anybody is allowed to try, you know, for better or worse, anybody is allowed to get up on stage with this microphone. And so I was immediately pretty infatuated with it. And it took me a while. It took me like almost a year to get up the courage to get on stage for the first time. I just went to open mics and watched and took notes. And, and so I finally, I, I made a new year's resolution <laughs> and, uh, on January 5th, the first Monday after the, the new year that year, I got up and did my three minutes. And from the very first single laugh that I heard from a joke that I told him, like, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It was just one of those cliche, like, it clicked and like, this is my passion. And from that moment, I was like, full steam ahead. I just got married. Me and my girlfriend just got married. Thank you. I am so excited. I immediately feel so much more mature, you know? Like, it's amazing. Like, our relationship didn't change, but I feel like it's, like, like instead of saying, like, my girlfriend keeps telling me to get a real job, you know? <laughs> like, now I say my wife uh, handles our finances, you know? Like, it just... 
sounds better, you know? Some people will wonder, why start a comedy club in Fort Collins? You know, a place that hasn't had a comedy club in 30 years. Why not Denver? That was kind of what I was told when I started out, too. Why the scene was so small here. It's because Denver's so close. And that once you get to a certain point, you're like, well, you've hit the ceiling here. you got to move to Denver if you want to advance. And I'm like, I, I just saw how good the crowds were and how big of a need there was for, for these shows that I was like, we can do it all from here, I promise. Like, you don't have to go to Denver. You don't have to go to L.A. or New York. We can do it all from Fort Collins. We've got plenty of people here ready to laugh and ready to support. Do you think the pandemic could kind of be... I hate to say it, but almost good for comedy? Sure. I mean, it has to be. Comedy is all about just we we get our comedy from our lives. And this is everybody. We're going through a huge global shared experience right now. And there's going to be lots of commentaries on it, good and bad. <laughs> there's It's it, it, it's going to be a tricky thing to navigate as the pandemic keeps going and, and more and more lives are lost, more and more people are, are affected directly by it it's going to be a tricky thing to joke about because no matter what in every audience there's going to be somebody that knows somebody close that was affected by it or you know they themselves and but that's what comedians do we take the world around us and we put it through our own personal specific lens and try and make it funny for everybody that was KUNC arts reporter Stacy Nick talking with David Rodriguez about opening a new comedy club in Fort Collins. The Comedy Fort opens on Thursday. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we speak with Denver-based photographer Narkita Gold about her new project, Black in Denver. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.